Hello, and thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. My name's Michael Todd Fink, but you're welcome to just call me Todd, like friends and family do. And this is the 68th episode of the show. And I'm just going to jump right in, because I don't really have much else to share with you that you can't find on the website, michaeltoddfink.com, or on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash kindmind. This episode was recorded last year, live and in person. In September of 2021, I believe, it was at the Hyatt in Lyle, Illinois. And listening back, it's nice to hear the sounds of a room full of people. Many of my talks are still virtual, so I'm still getting used to transitioning back to in-person. And I am always happy and available to do so for your organization or your event, or virtually, if that's what works best for your group. This episode is called Atlas of the Worldview, and I suppose it could have been called Atlas of Attitude. That has a nice alliteration to it, because this talk was all about the psychological construction of an attitude, including the ABCs, which is affect, the way we feel about something, behavior, what we tend to do as we engage with that something, and cognition the ideas, the beliefs, the thoughts that we have about that something. And that becomes a very profound thing. And I don't mean to suggest by the title that this is some kind of comprehensive list of worldviews, but just to say that our attitude is like a map that informs the way we navigate the world and respond to our experiences. It's like a GPS And we just kind of listen to that blindly. And when things are out of alignment in those ABCs with what's going on with the world, we call that cognitive dissonance. And I talk about the history or the origin of that discovery in science. Something I've noticed, though, that in this 21st century, there's been a mass secularization. And you would think that it would correspond to an age of reason. But it doesn't. Even though we have amazing things happening with applied science and the emerging technology, people are much less religious than when I was a kid. But overall, people are not less dogmatic. If we reflect on the scientific method, which involves observation and questioning and gathering of research and then forming a hypothesis or in our case as individuals opinions it seems to stop there the next step is really one of the most beautiful parts of the process testing experimentation what do we test for for failure We try to see how our opinion or our theory, our hypothesis about the way things are, the way things could be, how it could be wrong, or where the limits are of that system of thought. And so you see this manifested in the dialogue, or lack of dialogue, I should say, and the conflict and the discord in our communication, especially online, where there's some barriers to the 
to the humanity among us when you're just seeing screens and avatars and limited characters it's really easy to fall into these destructive habits so i propose in this talk that it's very essential for our mental health and our progress and our ability to solve these complicated issues and problems that face our country that face our planet that face our environment that we create a way to enter into dialogue and to be guided by knowledge open and curious part of the the struggle here also is that we have become addicted for lack of a better word to zero sum games perhaps due to the evolution of capitalism but but i also see capitalism as being somewhat of a natural phenomenon meaning if there were no regulating agencies people would naturally trade goods and services and it wouldn't all be positive or it wouldn't all be safe because everything that happens in nature is not safe so then you introduce some rules to the game but new problems emerge but like in the game of monopoly there are winners and losers and we've become so habituated to that that we even apply this in the form of hierarchy with with everything in life including areas of life that are not zero sum games like art we still rank artists we still give awards to films and music and we have games that are zero sum like football and basketball where there's clear winners and losers and then we go on to impose magical hierarchies on the past and players this is the greatest player even though there's no way to prove that or to test that we're just so used to that hierarchy ranking zero sum game so we have yet to really embrace positive sum games you know i think of something like an escape room where there's not a one winner out of the group of people everybody is playing the game and every time somebody finds a clue the whole group advances towards the goal so there's not going to be one person left behind if somebody figures out as far as i understand how that how those games work and there are many other positive sum games when we can break out of that almost cage of thinking then we may enter into a new era of dialogue and usher in much more scientific progress so i hope you enjoy this episode these are just some ideas i welcome your feedback and i hope we can connect soon thank you attitude in psychology is made up of three parts often known as the abc's of attitude it really should be more like the cab but that doesn't sound as it's not as easy to remember as abc's because the c stands for cognition thoughts 
beliefs, ideas, and the A is for affect, mood, feelings, inner sensations, and the third one is behavioral tendencies towards someone or something. And this is kind of interesting because I think without this tripartite of an attitude, we kind of just think attitude is simply the way one thinks. But there's those three components and psychological research shows that we want those three things to be aligned, to be in harmony. And in the description, I related that to music, that music has its component parts, melody, harmony, rhythm, and so on. And when there's tension in there, we actually feel as though we want it to be resolved. The whole reason we get attracted to music is because of dissonance and consonance. The feeling of music resolving is so soothing to the brain. I've talked a little bit about this before, but it's opposite of the way the universe works, which is towards entropy, which means more disorder. The Big Bang was a nice, tightly wrapped particle or singularity, and then since then things are getting more and more chaotic. Like a deck of cards, when you open it, it's all packed so neatly, and as soon as you start to shuffle it for the first time, you know it'll never be that ordered again. So our brains actually resist this because ongoing entropy and disorder means we're moving towards disintegration. That's what aging is all about. And anything that shows us the reversal of entropy is actually soothing to the brain. And music is an example of that. Music takes sound, which is all over the universe and chaotic, and it organizes it. Puzzles do the same thing. You spread a puzzle out on a table and people will sit there for hours making it organized, reversing the Big Bang. Sudoku, these numbers make no sense and in the end it all makes sense and people feel good about themselves. So the same applies to our attitude. My music professor in college told me, I think it was Mendelssohn, had a habit of staying in the bathtub all day. The only way you could get him out of the tub was by creating dissonance with his piano. And if you would like play a part of music and end on a five chord, which is the dominant chord and just walk away, Mendelssohn had to get out of the bath and go play the, <laughs> the tonic <laughs> so that his mind would, would calm down. So that's called harmony. And in our cognitive experience, we want that as well. And that's actually how an attitude can change shape. Attitudes change shape because somewhere in this tripartite of affect, behavioral tendencies, and cognition, something gets out of alignment. We have been shown in experiments, it's been shown that humans will go to great lengths to try to bring that back into a consistent pattern. So I want to start with pointing to Aesop's fable about sour grapes. Anyone ever heard that one? It's about a fox. The fox is jumping for these grapes for a long time and eventually he comes to realize that he's not going to be able to get them. So he convinces himself that the grapes were sour <laughs> anyway, so that he could reframe his dissonance. He was putting in all this effort to get these grapes and to just give up doesn't feel right. But when he changes his attitude about the grapes, then it's consistent with the way he's behaving, which is to let go or to give up. This word cognitive dissonance and explaining how attitudes 
can change or how any part of an attitude can change. Sometimes we think that a person changing their behavior is out of alignment with their attitude, but the behavioral tendency is actually part of the attitude. So still the attitude is changing. This cognitive dissonance term was coined in the 50s by a psychologist, Leon Festinger. His cognitive dissonance theory has been considered widely to be one of the most important discoveries of the 20th century in social psychology. He's the fifth most cited psychologist of the 20th century as well. But his theory on cognitive dissonance actually started in 1934 after an earthquake in India in the state of Bihar. Something strange happened after this earthquake, which was not severe, but it led to a shift in the, the mood of the people, the social climate. And a prophecy or a prediction started to spread that a worse earthquake was coming or some devastating natural disaster was on its way. So they were predicting something worse, something far worse was about to come. And the psychologists at the time thought that didn't make any sense because the prevailing insight was that reinforcement theory would be at play here. If something makes you feel worse, you avoid it. If something makes you feel better, you go towards it. So this theory or this prediction of impending doom, if it makes the people feel more anxious and suffer more, why would they spread that? But this is when Leon Festinger hypothesized something else going on, which was the dissonance. At that time, people didn't know much at all about post-traumatic stress disorder. So even though these people were unharmed in this earthquake, they had gone through something seemingly violent and seemingly dangerous and left them triggered. And so the people were having high anxiety, maybe probably panic attacks, but they couldn't see anything in the environment that was actually dangerous. And they had gotten through that event unscathed. So there was a dissonance between the way they're acting, the way they're feeling and the facts about the environment. But by creating this prediction that there's probably something worse coming, it started to realign their cognitive dissonance. And it wasn't until the 50s, after several years of Festinger creating experiments and studying this theory, that he was able to actually study it or test it out in a real life, another real life example. One day in the local newspaper, he saw a headline that said something like, messengers from the planet Clarion deliver dire warning about impending flood that will destroy the earth, something like that. And it turns out that there was a woman in Chicago, he named her Marion Keach to protect her privacy. He renamed the characters in this story and he wrote about it in this book, When Prophecy Fails. So he sent a group of colleagues to investigate this woman's prophecy. So Marion Keach lived in Chicago. One day she discovers she has this gift. Whenever she pulls out her pencil to write in her journal in the morning, she has this automatic writing. Her hand just starts transcribing messages. And she comes to learn that what's the forces, the unseen forces that are taking over her hand and writing down these messages are from another planet. The planet is the planet Clarion and another planet called Cirrus. Eventually she comes into contact through her hand with 
a being named Sonanda. And he explains to her through her writings that he is the present incarnation of Jesus Christ somewhere else in the galaxy. And it's her responsibility to spread his message and to let people know that a new dawn is coming and the earth is ripe for attunement and so on. And so she does her best to let people know, but nobody takes her seriously. And she continues to get these messages from what they call themselves the guardians, the guardians. And eventually one person finds there to be something that resonates with them. Festinger called this man Thomas Armstrong. And Armstrong was actually a physician some hundreds of miles away from where Marion Keach lived. But him and his wife were very much into studying UFOs and following UFO folklore. So their minds were ripe for this sort of thing. And when he heard about this, he tended to believe it. And he went and he met with Marion and pretty quickly he became a true believer. He tried to help Marion spread this message about the guardians and the presence of Sonanda. But again, nobody would take them seriously. He wrote to the local papers. Nobody took his message seriously. Then on, I think, August 15th of 1955, Marion got a transmission about the end of the world as we know it. On December 21st of that year, Sonanda and the Guardians were communicating to her that there would be an epic flood of the Earth and everybody would be wiped out and it would be the beginning of a new Earth. Except the people that believe what Marion is receiving. They will be spared and they'll be part of the, the prophecy and the redesigning of the planet. And Dr. Armstrong writes an open letter to 50 media outlets and none of them take him seriously again except one. One local paper somewhere in Illinois, Princess Story, comes out to interview Marion and, and they run a, a little story about this woman says that there's a message from the planet Clarion. And that's how Leon Festinger found this article. And so then he sends his colleagues to follow this group of people, because after that article printed, not just Thomas Armstrong, but several other people started to take her seriously. And it was the beginning of a little cult. And they started meeting at Armstrong's home like once a week. He was the closest to Marion. He would share with them these writings that Marion was getting. But mostly these people were intrigued by this prophecy and what they needed to do if it was really coming to prepare. And four of Festinger's associates would attend these meetings, which today we would know is not a very good study because their presence at the meetings is actually influencing their psychological experience, right? Because if you're at a meeting where you're listening to something that otherwise would be hard to believe, seeing more people there is what we now know as another cognitive distortion called social proof. More people in the room makes it more convincing. We're more inclined to go along with the larger number of people than with smaller number of people. They didn't know that at the time. And also they might have lied about their own beliefs about 
the prophecy. So some ethics came into question there. But nonetheless, they were following along because what Festinger wanted to find out was what will these people do on December 22nd? Will his theory of cognitive dissonance play out? And his prediction was they will not abandon their beliefs, just as something similar happened in India when that earthquake took place. They weren't able to drop the belief that they were in danger after the earthquake passed. So he predicted something similar would happen. But, you know, if we had the world the way we want, you would find that December 21st passes and there's no end of the world. And then you just drop that belief. But that's not how the mind works. So as time goes on, the group becomes a little bit more solidified. It's not a large group, though. And Festinger finds that about eight to ten people are completely all in. They're diehard with the beliefs. And he categorized them as all in based on some changes they made. They made some irreversible changes in their life, like quit their job or left their families or something serious like that. There was another group that was committed but hadn't made any of those changes. And then there was a third group that was just kind of along for the ride, just hanging on. And as the day got closer, the people were anxious to know what they were supposed to do. And it wasn't until December 20th, the night before the Great Flood, that Marion brings everybody together at her home and says, I've got the instructions from Sonanda. Tonight at precisely midnight, we all need to be at my home and a man, a spaceman will arrive at our door and he'll guide us to a spaceship and we will be escorted off the planet when the flood takes place. So they like remove metal and stuff from their clothes, thinking they don't want to get burned as they're traveling through space. <laughs> and at 11.15, they put their jackets on, they go to the living room, and Festinger's associates are there too. They're ready to go as well. And then it's 11.59, and then the clock strikes midnight, and then passes over to 12.01 a.m. of the 21st. No space man has arrived. And this is the moment where Festinger wants to know what's going to go down. This is his moment, you know. One of the colleagues steps outside to have a cigarette, waiting also. He's just helping take notes. And Armstrong goes out to meet him, thinking he's, you know, dejected. And several other of the members go outside. And Armstrong rallies everybody together and delivers this impassioned speech. <laughs> which completely endorses what Festinger believed would happen. He says, I've sacrificed too much. I've come too far to doubt now. And <laughs> I feel like I have to keep going. There's no turning back. So we must have just like misunderstood the prophecy or something like that. <laughs> and and Festinger feels really good. And it didn't take long, only till 4.45 a.m. before the group was reorganized. Marion had a new message from Sonanda saying that the flood had been averted due to their faith. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't believe in anything that wasn't true. The, the guardians called off the flood because of the seekers, they called themselves the seekers, because of the seekers' faith and the light that they spread and how deeply they believed. And 
So Festinger predicted that instead of disbanding there, that there would be a shift towards proselytizing. Prior to December 21st, the Seekers had no interest in growing their membership. In fact, Armstrong wouldn't even mention it much to people or wouldn't say anything convincing because he believed that those who this message resonates with will come forward. But after that dissonance, that cognitive dissonance, now he needed more social proof to keep going and they all shifted to a different approach where they were constantly reaching out to the media, trying to convince people, trying to increase their numbers. This is kind of similar to Heaven's Gate cult, if you remember that in the 90s. What a lot of people don't know actually is that group wasn't just led by Marshall Applewhite, it was led by two people, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. If it wasn't for Bonnie Nettles, there wouldn't have actually been any Heaven's Gate. Supposedly, Marshall Applewhite, I don't know if you remember him, the kind of shaved head, white haired fellow, and supposedly he met Bonnie Nettles in a psychiatric hospital. He was either visiting, some accounts say he was a patient there after a schizophrenic episode. He had a series of tragedies in his life and misfortunes. He was a professor of music. So many of these cults have musicians behind them. <laughs> so watch out. <laughs> Use your critical thinking skills here tonight. And he met Bonnie Nettles in the psychiatric hospital because he was dismissed from a university in Texas where he was teaching. And this was the second time in a row where he was terminated for having an affair with a male student of his. And he grew up Presbyterian and his father was like a part-time minister, I believe. So I think he had a lot of cognitive dissonance between what he thought he believed about sexuality and his actual behavioral tendencies. So that's his own dissonance because, again, the ABCs of attitude include what you feel inclined to do. And what he felt inclined to do didn't line up with what he thought he believed. But by acting on those urges, he sought out help for what he described as his homophobic urges that he wanted psychiatric treatment for. And when he met Bonnie Nettles, he thought he found his soulmate because she was somebody who was really into esoteric beliefs, studied astrology and Eastern mysticism. And she helped realign Marshall Applewhite's cognitive dissonance. It's like, well, you only had a piece of the religious puzzle. And so when she taught him all these other things and he realized, okay, you know, I'm supposed to actually go beyond sexuality and beyond all these human urges. That's how him and her developed this theory of Heaven's Gate. And they called themselves the two. Somewhere in the Bible and Revelations, they talk about two witnesses and they truly believed that was them. But the major cognitive dissonance for the cult members of Heaven's Gate comes when Bonnie Nettles dies in like 1985 or something. So this cult started in like late 60s, early 70s. And it wasn't until I think that was 97 where we saw that mass suicide on the news, the largest mass suicide on U.S. soil, because the largest mass suicide was Jonestown, one that was down in South America, hundreds of people. So the reason why there was some major cognitive dissonance that ended up producing the effect the unexpected effect that Festinger predicted with Marion and Thomas Armstrong's group was because Marshall Applewhite had been 
explaining to the people that they were all bound to go body and soul to another planet, like we heard they were talking about with the mass suicide. But when Bonnie Nettles died of cancer in 85, unexpectedly, and there was her body for the funeral, well, then Marshall Applewhite was in some cognitive dissonance with the members. Out of all the hundreds of members that were around at that time, only like two left after that, which was a major blow to the prophecy. And Marshall Applewhite was actually ready to give up. He was completely depressed because he himself believed in what Bonnie was telling him. And it was his own students, his own followers that had been too far into this thing that pulled him out of his depression said no boss we got to keep going and he carried on for like another 12 years and reframed his cognitive dissonance to a different version of their ascendance to another planet now he was saying that it would actually be that they would die on this earth but they would get their new bodies when they arrived on the new planet so everybody's back in again. And he got more and more paranoid, more and more eccentric because of thought he had schizophrenia. Also, some people thought that he might have been in the hospital for schizophrenia before he started this group. And as he got a little bit more demanding, he wanted the group to get smaller and smaller so that only the people who were 100% committed would be there. He didn't want people that were only partly committed. And that created more alignment. Because if you were to join and only people who were 100% committed to this prophecy were there, then you're more likely to go along with it. So, so many people wondered in 97, how could you convince 38 people to kill themselves to go up to Hale-Bopp Comet and get taken to some other planet? Like, how do you get from being somebody on the street to being somebody in this cult that's willing to commit suicide for this belief? And where it happened, according to Festinger and other social psychologists, was after Bonnie Nettles died, and then a series of behavioral changes that made them too far in. So at some point, Marshall Applewhite, who often went by the name Doe because he was a musician, and Bonnie was often called T, Doe and T from Solfeggio. At some point, Marshall Applewhite was medically castrated and many of the other male members were medically castrated because both the men and women in this group were to be of no gender because their new forms on the new planet was going to be beyond the limitations of human desires and being a man or being a woman. So they were already dressing that way. And once those people did that, when you get to the point of the mass suicide, now imagine if they say, no, 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 now that's too much. Well, then you got a whole nother cognitive dissonance. You're giving up after being medically castrated. That really is out of line. You've done that, but you don't believe in this thing? You know? So that's how he was able to take this group over the edge because of all the series of behavioral changes that then led up to that last one. It wasn't just like one day, it's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to all do this thing and we're going to commit suicide next year or something like that. It was a series of behavioral changes. The psychologist at Cornell, who I talk about sometimes, Daryl Bem, said, well, sometimes our affect, our mood and our thoughts 
affect our behavior. And sometimes our behavior affects our mood and our thoughts. It goes both ways. Sometimes we do things and we're surprised that we do them and we, we have to change our attitude. So I wanted to point out four other ways other than cognitive dissonance or how cognitive dissonance can play out in specific ways that another psychologist identified, Dr. Todd Daniel at Missouri State, gave a lecture about this several years ago. But the first one is called the foot in the door strategy. This is when you make a very small request to somebody. And if they honor that request, you're more likely to convince them to make a larger request and thereby change their attitude. So there was an experiment done where researchers asked a group of people if they could place a very small sign in their yard because the city had started a campaign for reducing accidents on the road. And it was called safe driving, something like that. So all they wanted the people to do was put a little sign that said something like drive safely. Was it just a tiny sign? The people that agreed to do that were then approached later on and asked if a large sign could be put in their yard. The researchers came back and said, this campaign has been so successful. All your neighbors have been doing it. Everybody's been doing it in the community. And we're so proud to report that we're getting these great results. So can we put a larger sign? Now, the people that were asked to put a larger sign who had already put the smaller sign were cross compared with people who had not been approached for the smaller sign and were just asked, can we put this large sign? And a very small amount of those people agreed to that, whereas a much larger amount of people said, yeah, you can put this large obnoxious sign in my yard. The researchers never put that sign in the yard. They just wanted to find out what percentage of people would agree to an obnoxious request compared to the general population. And it was much higher and that's called the foot in the door strategy. Second one that he identified is actually the opposite of this. It's called the door in the face strategy. You can either start by making such a tiny request that it would be hard to say no to, or you can start by making such an obviously inappropriately large request that once you make a small request after that, people feel bad that they already said no to you and maybe more likely to say yes to something really small. So those of you who have any alma maters may know that they hit you up from time to time for fundraising. Mine tries to get me all the time at the worst time on the phone and the mail on email. Todd, we're trying to offer this scholarship program to people who were also in the same psychology department as you. You want, you want to help people who don't have the means to be able to get the same quality education that you got, right? So can we count on you to contribute, whatever, $500 or something? I'm like, no, no, you can't. I remember I contributed that large tuition. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so then, so then they know that and then they'll back down. Well, okay, that's fine. You know, we understand not everybody can make that, but how about like $10, $20? And still in my case, it's no, because I know what they're trying to do. <laughs> and, but for a lot of people, when you ask for a large request and somebody says no, and then you make a reasonable small request, it can really have a psychological effect on people. And that happens in relationships as well. Can you do this big thing for me? No, I, I can't do that. All right, well, just do the small thing then. Can I borrow your car? No, I can't borrow my car. I need it. Well, can you at least give me a ride? Yeah, I can do that. You see, so that's the door in the face strategy.
The third one, very well-known, bait and switch, until it was more understood through psychological research was how a lot of people were manipulated in sales tactics, specifically like selling cars. People would advertise a, a certain model in the paper or something when you come down there. And after you've fallen in love with that deal and that specific car, turns out that car is not actually there. It was sold, but there's one just like it. It's just, of course, more expensive. And now that's illegal, but people still do similar things with products. You know, it typically happens whenever you're making a larger purchase that there's one price advertised, but in the fine print, there's just a lot of fees, there's service fees, there's... My brother was showing me registering his motorcycles in New Mexico that there's a beautification fee in the registration amount. I'm like, where do they come up with this stuff? You know, so there's all these other fees and it's almost like a bait and switch. And even though that's illegal in sales, it's still used in ideas. And this psychologist, Dr. Daniel, was pointing out a time when, when a city convinced people to buy into an idea that allowed them to generate more revenue by putting up cameras to give them photo citations. They started a campaign to reduce road rage in the city and everybody, of course, felt good at the council meetings or whatever about reducing road rage. They needed to identify or define what road rage was. So they had all the obvious things like cutting people off, driving aggressively, and then near the bottom, it had something like driving too slowly. And another one was running red lights. And somebody's like, well, I mean, how is running a red light road rage? Like, I can see how that could happen to a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. Or how is driving too slow? Well, if you're driving too slow, you make somebody else mad. But yeah, but that's not my road rage. Anyways, that was smuggled in to the definition of road rage. And after everybody signed off on, on that, then it led to them putting up cameras in the intersections and citing people for running red lights and all under the guise of people buying into the idea that we would start this campaign to reduce road rage and accidents. So that's bait and switch. And then the last one is the that's not all strategy. That's not all strategy is basically what you see in the infomercials and other advertisements now online where before you get a chance to decide you don't want this crappy product, they keep adding on to the things that you'll get. So you get this perceived sense that the value is increasing and the time is running out because there's a clock usually on those infomercials, right? Or there's a timer and it's running down. And they used to say operators are standing by, but then they realized if people are just standing by, that means there's no urgency here. So like, if you get a busy signal, keep calling <laughs> and hopefully you'll get through. And the that's not all strategy would typically include like these extra vacuum parts and all kinds of other crap that comes with this toaster or whatever appliance and, and stuff like that. And it really plays on people's attitudes where after a while they feel like they can't afford not to have that thing if they're watching and, and taking it all in. So anybody can do this one to try to convince people to change their attitude, to keep adding on, keep adding on, keep adding on the value, the perceived value of whatever it is you're, you're trying to convince them of. And then of course this last one is cognitive dissonance. And 
You know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this tonight was because I think this is what is really fueling so much of the tension and the discord that's around the pandemic and around politics. And it definitely feels like it's at epic proportions. I've, I see it just tearing families apart. The perceived cognitive dissonance that each other has. Everybody is always going after the cognitive dissonance of somebody else. So many memes and tweets are all just like a bite-sized bit of news that highlights some cognitive dissonance of somebody else. And it can be so powerful and so convincing. And since people do not want to be out of alignment, it can really fuel this aggression. So the real reason why I wanted to share this is because if we understand how attitudes form, they form through learning. People learn things through school. They learn things through observation. They learn things through classical conditioning. And when people learn a lot about a particular topic, they tend to have stronger beliefs. It's almost as if we think because I'm studying something or because I study psychology or because I study politics that I should actually have a strong view of people and things and events and circumstances, which is another kind of strange phenomenon that just because you're studying something, why does that mean that you should have a strong opinion about it? You might have a lot of information about it, but that you should have a strong opinion about it. It's just something else to be investigated. There is social factors. When people who we perceive to be important or valuable, when they have a particularly strong belief in the community, we're more likely to assimilate some of those beliefs. Our families, our culture, our religions. Religions all have a lot of clashing beliefs, but it's usually something that we adopt before we learn much about who we are and develop critical thinking skills and learn about our psychological makeup. I've worked with a patient not too long back that struggled with so much shame and anxiety around her sexuality, recognizing her own homosexuality or maybe bisexuality, I'm not sure. And she described it so poignantly as, I learned to hate myself before I knew myself. Because of the particular family and cultural upbringing, she developed certain attitudes around the sexuality that she actually grew into. So there was a very powerful cognitive dissonance going on. And even though the, the psychology says that we're either bound to reframe the beliefs within the attitude or we're bound to reframe our behavior, I feel like there's a third possibility. And that's what I think we're seeing a lot of now. And that's just simply shame. That a person just shames themselves. Well. I'm flawed. I mean, I think in religion, this often just plays out as being a sinner. Well, I'm a sinner, so I'm going to have cognitive dissonance. These things are going to fall out of alignment because I'm imperfect. But sometimes that gets exaggerated for people with psychiatric illness and a person actually feels like they're bad. They may not change anything. They may go on believing the same things about health, about their sexuality, about what it means to be moral. and. When they fall out of line with that, they'll just think they're a bad person. They'll just feel ashamed of themselves. You know, I recognize that in some of the people that I work with, and I also recognize that culturally and socially and in religion that I'm, you know, culturally connected to. And what I think 
is important. And one of the reasons why I bring this up tonight is because I don't think there is safe spaces to actually talk about beliefs, to talk about attitudes in a way that opens people up to unpacking their dissonance without shame. Because we know that people are waiting for that moment to, to get you, waiting for that moment to prove your mistake, and that doesn't feel safe. I would love to see environments or safe spaces where people come together actually to find out what their cognitive dissonance is. To be able to talk about politics or policies or to talk about circumstances or to talk about decisions that we have to make as a family or as a community or as a country or as a planet around climate change and to be able to go into them knowing I'm trying to find out from you what my own dissonance is. And I've tried to do this in my own life. Like I'll have conversations with my family to figure out where I don't align. And if I'm doing that with that kind of openness, I won't fall into confirmation bias and I won't fall into the social proof where I need to then go proselytize and convert more people to my belief to reframe my dissonance. That I consider to be dialogue. That's what like quantum physicist David Bohm outlined as dialogue, that there could be a type of conversation that's not a discussion, it's not a debate. Debate is where everybody's trying to convince the other person that what they already came in with needs to stay intact. But imagine if we went into dialogues where we were open to learning about how we could create more harmony within ourselves and among each other. And it's just not safe enough to do so. So I'm not sure how we get there, but I do think understanding cognitive dissonance better, looking at these historical events where we see how things can go so devastatingly wrong for people, for families, and for communities like with Heaven's Gate or some of these other doomsday or millennial cults that Festinger studied, we can see how we trend towards serious heartache and shame and psychological suffering and be able to you know, pull back from the brink maybe as a society. So I'll pause there in case there's anything you'd like to share or reflect on, or if anybody on Zoom would like to ask anything or share anything, you can feel free at this time. I think, you know, I think it can be good to talk about dialogue, talk about dialogue, to talk about attitude, to talk about how attitudes form, how attitudes take shape, to talk about confirmation bias, to talk about some of these things with our families. But ultimately, if we don't have an open mind to listen to people, even when we feel like those beliefs are absurd. They're more likely to become defensive. Leon Festinger himself said that a man of conviction is hard to change. If you question him, he turns away. If you bring up facts and figures, he questions your sources. If you appeal to logic, he loses the point with you. So, yeah, so we have to approach each other, I think, with a spirit of openness and genuine curiosity. Build off that. What I realize, what I've learned in Daryl Bem's self-perception theory, is that we actually form a sense of self based on our attitude. If you ask people what makes you you, they may say things like being a man, you know, or being born to my parents, you know, some obvious things about your ethnicity and, and so on. But pretty quickly, they'll get to you know, what you stand for, what you believe, 
your faith, the ideas that you have. So when people feel very strongly about that actually being the stuff they're made out of, well then it's understandable that if that was ever threatened, it would be met with anxiety because that is then a threat to one's own sense of survival. Because if you could actually destroy something about my attitude or about my belief, then my survival would be in jeopardy, would be threatened. So we have to also look at what does it mean to be us. And, you know, I think in the contemplative and wisdom traditions of the world, when you explore this a little bit further, and I think you can find this in so many wisdom traditions, that there was something beyond the thoughts that happened to us. I mean, if you just ask yourself the simple question, can I stop thinking right now? I can't. I can slow my thoughts to regulating my breath. But if you can't just turn off your thoughts, then it's a strange thing to think we're synonymous with our thoughts or that we're the author of our thoughts even. And I've talked about this before when we get into meditation. But if we can accept that we have a digestion in our stomach and that we don't directly control that, I can't like pause my food in my intestines. So we have a digestive system that is not me. I have a digestive system and we have a circulatory system above that. And I can't actually pause my heartbeat. And we have an endocrine system regulated by our thyroid. And I can do things that indirectly affect my hormones, but I can't directly you know, make the cocktails. And then when you get up to your cognitive system, so you got a digestive system, circulatory system, endocrine system, and a cognitive system, but there all of a sudden everything breaks down and that's where we superimpose identity. Like I'm there. Even though you can't find an ego anywhere in the brain, you can't actually pinpoint in the brain where the ego sits, but we feel like it's in there. And so that is why I think we get so identified and attached to the thoughts that arise. And it works both in a positive and negative way. I mean, when somebody has suicidal thoughts, they feel really bad about themselves, like I'm a bad person or I'm a broken person. But in contemplation and introspection, you start to look for the looker. You think about the thinker and you can start to experience, and it seems like a paradox when I say you look for the thinker. There's no you that's actually doing it. There's looking. And that gives the experience that, okay, there is consciousness and the contents of consciousness. And when you can directly experience that, a person can feel less attached to the cognitive distance that arises. But there can still be the same effort towards harmony without the sense that I have to defend my dissonance because now a person can perceive their thoughts in the same way they might have perceived their heartbeat. Oh, there's something irregular about my heartbeat. I don't think that says anything too deeply about me as a soul or as a spiritual being. It's something that I might like get checked out. But when it comes to the thoughts, it's a totally different story. But I think through meditation, it can be a similar story as to the other phenomena that happens within our awareness. Well, let me just share with you a couple of other anecdotes and everybody can you know, take this however they want to. In one of the original experiments with Leon Festinger that coined the term cognitive dissonance, he created a very boring experiment for a group of subjects. They had to like move around 
wooden spools into different piles and like take wooden pegs and put them back in a hole and pull them out and rotate them 90 degrees. And they did that kind of stuff for like an hour. He made it as boring as possible. Then after they completed this hour long task, he divided the participants into two groups, but he asked everybody to tell the next person how much fun it was to do this experiment, even though it was really boring. One group, he paid $1 to do that. And the other group, he paid $20. Now, $20 is a lot of money in 1959. I mean, gas was like 25 cents a gallon. So I don't know what that would be like, but it's it a good amount of money. Now, you would think that the people who were paid $20 would have felt as though this was really a fun thing because they ended up with 20 bucks. But as it turned out, the people who got paid $1 actually convinced themselves that the game or the experiment was genuinely fun and interesting. Why do you think they convinced themselves that it was interesting and the people who got paid $20 were able to say, no, nah, it wasn't really interesting, it was really boring. But I told the people it was interesting. It's easy, like, if you just kept increasing that $20, it's easy to understand, like, there is an amount. I'll tell some silly thing like that for some amount of money, and I can explain that I did it for money. I said, oh, they paid me a lot of money. All I had to do is tell the other person that something was fun that wasn't. You know, it's like not too immoral, you know? But that you would lie for a buck, <laughs> you know? That's hard, because it's like bought for a buck, you know? So in that case, they actually reframed their memories. Then there's another anecdote I want to share, because I think we can just understand ourselves better. We can understand our family members better. We can understand our community members better. Because again, whatever it is that makes up people's attitude, we already know that, like, so this applies to racial, if we're going to try to change a person's attitude, it doesn't matter what their attitude is or our attitude is. It's already a stalemate, you know? What I'm talking about is dialogue, which is totally different than trying to make converts to anything, right? So in this other example, this was in the Korean War, and Tony Robbins, I think, is the one who would tell this story. I think it's true, though, but during the Korean War, there was an abnormal amount of American fighter pilots who defected to China. And part of that was understood not through torture tactics in the interrogation rooms, but it was due to a series of psychological steps that led to cognitive dissonance. So that this one fighter pilot like described it like this. He was separated from everybody else and was called into an interrogation room. And he's thinking like, I'm going to be beaten and they're going to try to get all kinds of information out of me. But he was instructed to only give his name, rank, and serial number. He's allowed to share that much, nothing else. But he finds that he goes into an office and it's like a really comfortable room and he sits down with a Chinese official and he's very friendly, the official. And he just starts to chat with him. It's just like, can I get you anything, you know? And, and then just starts asking him really normal, friendly questions like, have you ever seen the Grand Canyon? What's that like? You know, I've only seen pictures, you know, it seems so beautiful. He speaks really good English, very friendly, very good manners. And, you know, in the beginning, the pilot's just like, I'm not telling you anything other than name, 
rank and number, and you can beat me if you have to, but I'm not sharing anything else. But as time goes on, he starts to think, well, what's the harm in saying, yeah, I've seen the Grand Canyon, it's beautiful. So eventually he does, he says that much. Yeah, I've been been to Florida. Well, have you been to New York? I mean, is that really like, as they say, like, you know, all kinds of people from all over the world? Yeah, yeah, New York is an amazing place. And they go on, eventually he opens up to just saying harmless things. And then, then the official asks him, so would you say America's perfect, like perfect place to live then? And Clyde's like, no, I mean, like, nowhere's perfect, nothing's perfect. And then the official, well, you know, like in what ways is it, you know, is not perfect. And that's when the shift starts with the cognitive distance and the pilot saying, well, you know, like two things. And then the official kind of like encourages them like, yeah, and I've heard like, there's real serious problems with race relations in the United States. And the pilot said, yeah, yeah, we have a long history of serious problems between different races in America. And then the official's like, yeah, well, we, we don't have that problem in China. You can believe that, right? And I was like, yeah, I, mean, I can imagine, you know, there's not the same diversity. And in the end, he goes on like this and gets the pilot to actually then like write down all the things they've agreed on. It's like, so can we now just summarize what we talked about? I don't want any secret information from you. I was just trying to learn about America and China. So here's what we identified as imperfect in the United States and what communist China does better. Then the Chinese official sends him back and the others eventually meet with him like, what happened? You know, what was it like? Did they beat you? He's like, no, it was actually just like quite pleasant. And then the Chinese officials play on an intercom to the other cellmates the list that this pilot made about why communist China is better than the United States. And that's how it's seemingly that like pilots were defecting to China and he actually did that he wrote it they had these lists from American fighter pilots but you can understand that it looks so bad but if you saw all the steps of cognitive dissonance that led to that you can see how what appears to make no sense makes sense but my point in all of this is that what I think we can do is create spaces for conversation, where we can try to learn ourselves about how people arrive at the positions they do arrive at. It's amazing to approach somebody and want to understand them, not necessarily approaching somebody to change them. You create this opportunity for real engagement, real exchange. And I think that just starts in our own families and our own friends and communities where people instead of convincing themselves that they have the answers with whatever it is, approach each other with the spirit of inquiry and genuine openness, you know? And, and, and you may say, we can't do that. We, we don't have time for that. Well, I mean, that's how everybody feels though about everything, about religion, about politics, about the end of the world, as we saw in these examples. So then it's like, then all we can conclude is that there can be no dialogue.